It is hard to believe that we are near the end of our studies in the book of James. The half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. James began this epistle talking about trials, faith, and prayer. That's how he began. And now it ends talking about trials, faith, and prayer. Listen to this. Here are some of the words from our passage today. Suffering, faith. Hold on. You ready? You ready? Pray, 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 prayer, pray, prayer, prayed with prayer, prayed. James had a nickname in the early church, Agesippus, second century writer, lived right after the apostles, said, James was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. And he became known as Camel Knees, hence the title of the sermon. James practiced what he was preaching. But our passage also speaks about suffering and healing. Listen to these words from our passage. Sick, anointing, sick, prayer of faith, raised him up, healed. And some of the wording here may sound a little strange to our ears, but this is also what the rest of the Bible is about. We live here. Suffering, brokenness, prayer, confession, forgiveness, restoration. And today's passage is a bit complex. And I'll promise you I'm not going to answer all the questions you could ask because I can't answer all of my own questions. Uh, for example, there, there's a danger of claiming that the healing described here is a formula of what God is obligated to do or what we think God is obligated himself to do. Hey, you know, if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. Now, you could shoehorn this passage into that interpretive mold if that were all that Scripture said about it or all that James said about it, but it's not. You don't take an isolated verse or two out of the larger context and make a doctrine out of it. A silly example, um, my grandkids in Knoxville uh, are in year-round swimming competitions, and sometimes Betsy and I go up and watch a swim meet and uh, watch them compete. Now, envision a kid um, in, uh, at the starting block reciting Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So you've got kid in lane number two. You know where I'm going with this. In lane number two, from First Baptist Church, citing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm going to win. you got a kid in lane number four from the First Pentecostal Church, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm going to win. you got a kid in lane six from the First Presbyterian Church saying, whatever God has foreordained before the foundation of the earth. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, just messing a little bit here. What was Paul talking about? He was, he was actually... He was actually talking about the fact that he had lived in poverty and he had lived in riches. He had learned to prosper, to flourish in both extremes. And in those extremes, I can do all things 
whether it's poverty or riches, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's what I'm getting at. When you look at the big picture of miraculous healings in the Bible, we, we do not see one mold into which every case fits. They come in all shapes and sizes. God is a God of divine variety. You'll find sickness related to sin. You'll find sickness unrelated to sin. You'll find sickness where God healed believers. You'll find sickness where God healed unbelievers. You'll find sickness where God chose not to heal. You'll find sickness where healing was immediate. You'll find sickness where healing was time delayed. You'll find, uh, you even have sickness when both, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you, you have when, when the, the healer and the sick person were immediately present with each other, and you also have long-distance healings. You have different healing methods. Prayer, putting the hand in the cloak, dipping in the Jordan seven times, being touched by Jesus. Jesus sometimes just spoke and healed. He made clay and healed. Or where they touched his cloak, sometimes no methods are recorded. But that's not all. You'll also find miracles where the recipient of the miracle had faith. You'll have miracles where, the, where there was no faith from the recipient, or they couldn't even have faith. You have miracles where unbelief was present. Now, I say all this because a worst-case view of what I'm saying is let's begin our study by putting on naturalistic blinders on our faith so that we can constrain our passage into a mold of what it can't mean. But I would argue that James and Jesus and Paul and Luke and the rest of the Bible tell us, set the mold for what it does mean. Scripture interprets Scripture. Here's, where I'm, here's, here's three, three big principles. Number one, God can and does heal miraculously for his purposes. Number two, God can and does heal providentially for his purposes. And number three, God can but doesn't heal for his purposes. I'm going to break that down for just a moment. God can and does heal miraculously for his purposes. That was the first one. And I can draw a direct line of cause and effect between the founding of this church and the healing of my dad's brain tumor where the neurosurgeon came in to me and said, I've heard of things like this, but I've never seen it before. Second, God can and does heal providentially for his purposes through the medical profession and time. And I'm very thankful for all the doctors and nurses that worship here together as brothers and sisters who believe this and who practice this. Third, God can and doesn't heal or relieve suffering, but for his purposes. In James chapter 1, that other bookend, our trials are tests of faith that produce endurance, patience. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh where he begged God to heal him, but God said, no, this has a specific purpose in your spiritual life, and my grace is sufficient for you. Consider the sufferings of Job, that James just referred to two verses earlier. There was no immediate healing there. Consider the fact that eventually, are you ready for this? Every one of us will experience suffering that leads to death until Jesus comes back. This text is not primarily about healing. 
this text is about prayer. So I don't want us to lose sight of that as we go through. The section begins in verse 13 with the first of three questions, two of three questions. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? And in verse 14, is anyone sick? Now, the questions are different, and each one brings its own response. First of all, verse 13, so we're going we're gonna to dig into this word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. Is anyone among you suffering? The mean of, meaning of suffering can mean illness, but it usually has a broader view of having troubles or suffering misfortune in life. This includes heartache over emotional pain, uh, grieving over a struggling marriage, over your job, over a broken friendship, over a child that's unsaved, making bad decisions. And, and, and James says, is this you? Is this you? You must pray. For a brokenhearted believer, prayer is entering into the presence of Isaiah's wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, the one and the only one who knows fully and truly understands your agony. Because on the cross, he not only took into himself your sins, but also our sorrows. Our sorrows. We have communion with Jesus. It starts with him, and on this table, it extends to one another. Hebrews 4 tells us this, and, and listen to these words very carefully. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's prayer. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Exactly what do we pray for? James doesn't say. It's appropriate to ask God to, to fix the problem, remove it. It's also appropriate to pray for patience and endurance as you live with it. That's what James says in chapter 1. The first time, if you, do you remember the first time the apostles were arrested and threatened and released with a warning that they better stop preaching in Jesus' name if they knew what was good for them because bad things were going to happen if they didn't? They prayed. What did they pray? Not that the persecution would stop, but that they would be faithful. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may be removed out of this world so we may never, no, I'm sorry, then grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all boldness. Now here's the thing, James was a part of that, right? Look at it, look at the chronology. James was there, and that was the prayer. So what do you do when you're hurting? What do you do when you're scared, you're frightened? Pray. The second question, is anyone cheerful? Wow, Gary, after all that, why would anybody be cheerful? Because there's also joy and, and, and laughter in this life. Uh, when I'm together with some of my friends and we, we talk about things and we talk about very heavy, very hard, very painful things, that time is also just filled with laughter. 
and, and because we know God's in control. And, and we, James has told us in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from God. So we praise God from whom all blessings flow. We rejoice in the giver. We doxologize. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Singing in worship as a church family. I love how you sing. Or singing alone. Letting it flow spontaneously. The Sunday before my mother-in-law died, this past fall, we were sitting with her at Alexine Village, and she sang, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. She sang that. just flowed out of her. And she sang it. And she sang it. And she sang it. 45 minutes, nonstop. <laughs> we loved it. And Jesus loved it. Maybe sing with a playlist of praise songs in your car that express your joy, but low enough that you can drive safely. Maybe create a tune to one of the songs. Singing can express truth and emotions with pitch, range, and intensity that speech does not have. I've wondered for years if when we get to heaven, if our communication will not just be speech, but will be ratcheted up to singing. It communicates better, or can. Something to think about. One of the manifestations of being filled with the Spirit, right, is to, and mentioned twice, is to sing in songs. Songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, something to ponder. So, so far, if anyone is troubled, look to God and pray. If anyone is cheerful, look to God and praise. And by the way, praise is a form of prayer. Verse 14 moves into a specific kind of suffering. Things get a little bit more dense. In addition to prayer, there's something that you can do. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I, I personally believe that the sickness James is referring to here is not a cold, uh, but, but when a person is gravely ill and in possibly near death. Here's why I think that. This fits with calling for the elders instead of going to the elders. It fits with the, the description of praying over him, which is a posture of someone who's bedfast. It, and the word sick was used this way. The Roman official's son was about to die. Uh, it was used of Epaphroditus, who almost died. It was used of Lazarus, who did die. It was used of Dorcas, who also did die. And it fits with verse 15 that says that the Lord will raise him up. Not just the Lord will heal, but raise him up. So, you know, that, I think we're, we're looking at a very serious, very serious illness here. What about the anointing with oil? Well, sometimes, and, and many people have said, well, what this is is medicinal. Well, it can be. Frequently is in Scripture. You remember the Good Samaritan? The guy was, was, had been mugged and was in the ditch. He anointed him with his wounds with oil. The, uh, the very famous physician Galen from the 2nd century referred to olive oil as, quote, the best of all remedies. But nobody believed that oil was the best medicine for all ailments. You remember the guy in the movie, the, uh, 
my big fat Greek wedding who used Windex to heal everything. Nobody th thought that way about oil. You, oh, you don't use oil to, on a broken leg or other things. Olive oil was also used for spiritual purposes. Uh, it was a symbol of God's presence and of God's care. Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil. Oil was symbolic of God's spirit over and over again in the Old Testament and on into the New Testament where our bodies are, our body, our physical bodies are temples of what? The Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is that the healing James describes here does not happen because of the anointing. The anointing, I believe, is a symbol of God's presence. It happens because of the praying. In fact, even grammatically, pray is the primary verb and anointing is a secondary verb. And, and yes, here at Signal Mountain Bible Church, the elders practice anointing of those who call on us, who want us to pray together with them and anoint them with oil. And, and we do that. We are blessed to come and do that with you. Verse 15 explains why, in this case, the elders pray over the person. In this case, the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Some have argued that James means that any prayer for healing, accompanied by faith at any time, will heal every sick person. So, would that mean that Paul didn't have enough faith for his thorn in the flesh? Or that Jesus didn't have enough faith in the Garden of Gethsemane? See, no one believes that interpretation in an absolute way, including James, who eventually died. One well-known uh, Pentecostal preacher who uh, prayed this prayer of faith claimed that his cancer was healed. And that and, and by the way, I, I know a little bit about this man. He, he was a wonderful man. But that prayer and, and the announcement that his cancer was healed went out over the radio and television, and then he died shortly after. Uh, his ministry said, well, he didn't die of cancer, but of complications, which sounded a little strange. Like they prayed for healing from the cancer, but they forgot to pray for the complications. Uh, I am praying for God to heal my wife, Betsy. I am praying for God to heal Hannah. I am praying for God to heal Diane Cross. There are so many others in our church. We could go row by row. In fact, we could go seat by seat sometimes. If he does, we praise our God for that. If he doesn't, does that mean that God didn't keep his end of the deal? Or does it mean that I don't have enough faith? Or does it mean that they don't have enough faith? Or does that mean that we as a church don't have enough faith? And exactly how many faith units does God need to calibrate that would qualify as enough to quantify, to go over the threshold, to flip his switch so that he would heal. How many faith units? I remember um, Pastor Donald Cole, who hosted a radio Q&A 
call-in show on Moody Radio. Some of you remember Donald Cole? Oh, I loved, I loved listening to that gentle man. He, he was talking uh, to a woman who called in. She was brokenhearted. Apparently, there was a man in her church who was repeatedly telling her that if she had enough faith, her sick child would be healed so that her child's suffering was her fault. And after Cole patiently listened to this horrific story of spiritual abuse, he calmly said that his response would be, dear, to take your Bible, close it, lift it up, and hit him over the head with it. I think that that was an unguarded moment on national radio, but I really enjoyed it <laughs> in my flesh. So let's examine this verse a little bit more closely. The prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Whose faith? So that we'll know, you know, if, it, if they're not healed, who is to blame? No. <laughs> But I want you to think this through. The sick person has already shown faith by calling the elders and then by confessing the sin. That's the plan. The elders are elders and they arrive with faith that Jesus is the great physician. So it kind of looks like everybody involved has faith. I would suggest that the prayer of faith is connected to the other bookend that we see in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Remember, it begins and it ends with suffering, begins and ends with faith, begins and ends with prayer. In James 1, we pray without doubting. We're not double-minded men. This is not about doubting that God has to answer our prayers in a specific way, but rather that the faith that unconditionally knows, knows, knows that God is in control. And he will bring about what is for our eternal good. He will give us everything that he knows we need. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. Now, pardon me. I'm still studying. There's a lot I don't know. But as I put both parts of this verse together, God may allow sickness as a matter of discipline also for persistent sin. This happens in Acts. It happened with uh, the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 11. And, and the word if makes it clear that you cannot look at sickness and conclude, oh, if you're sick, that's the result of sin. Remember John chapter 9? The disciples say, ask Jesus, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus, I, I wish Greek had a phrase for rolled his eyes, but I think he did and said, neither one. But God is working through this so that you may know his power. And then he healed the man. So, <clears throat> if sin is, however, behind the suffering, if it is, then when it is confessed, it will be forgiven him, and he'll be healed. Therefore, verse 16 says, confess your sins to one another, and what? Pray one another that you may be healed earlier james mentioned job uh, two verses ago verse 11 uh, two verses before our passage james 
James's, I'm sorry, Job's comforters inferred sin from his sickness. Right? So much sin results in X units of sickness or trouble in your life. So you can infer the effect from the cause. And God said, you are wrong about Job. But have you ever noticed that Job repented of his pride and then was forgiven, and then, then he prayed forgiveness for his three friends? And all of that was before he was healed. Now, here James says not just to confess to the elders, but confess to one another, which, I mean, one obvious application would be that if you make confession to the, uh, someone whom you have wronged. But I think this includes the broader idea that we need accountability relationships with one another in the body of Christ. We are members of one another, and we pray, and we pray, and we also these verses are, I know they're a bit dense, so I'm going to pick out a few things so far. All, just broad, broadly, all sickness is ultimately traceable to the fall, and some, but not all sickness, is traceable to a specific sin. Some, but not all. The church is to be involved with all of that, with one another, so we can help and so that we can pray. The elders of a church are to be involved so that we can uh, um, as a, be available, be sensitive uh, to both physical and emotional pain and anoint with oil. And then as elders, when, when we're asked to, anoint with oil and pray. And I would add that the prayer of faith is in the object of prayer, not necessarily in the specific outcome of prayer we don't always know what god's will is but we can trust him and that's what faith means verse 16 continues the effectual prayer effective prayer of a righteous man a, a righteous man is a person whose sins are forgiven can accomplish much it's kind of an awkward phrase in, to translate the esv i think wins the translation uh, 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 debate the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. The Greek is actually a little bit easier than the English. James is not talking about spiritual superheroes. The sick person confesses the sin connected with the sickness, and they're forgiven, and their standing is righteous before God. Remember like Jesus' story of the tax collector who went home justified rather than the, than the uh, 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 Pharisee? Now, you might think of someone like Elijah as a spiritual superhero, but James says, no. Here's his illustration, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. L literally, he prayed with prayer. The doubling of the word intensifies it. He prayed with prayer. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah's name occurs 30 times in the New Testament. This is the first one, chronologically, as the books were written. He was an imperfect man, but he was God's imperfect man. Uh, here's the background of what happened that 
uh, that James is referring to, Elijah, had an ongoing confrontation with uh, King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. Jezebel had imported 450 priests of Baal uh, uh, for idol worship into the kingdom. And in 1 Kings 17 and 18, you can read the story, but Elijah told Ahab that God would withhold rain for three and a half years. At the end of that time, the nation was absolutely miserable and close to devastation, and the king was desperate. And Elijah posed a sort of battle of the gods, if you will, on Mount Carmel. We built an altar, and uh, uh, we'll put a bull on top of the altar. By the way, advantage Baal, who was symbolized as a bull. So we'll put a bull on the altar, and uh, then uh, whichever deity answers prayer, asking for fire from heaven, he's going to win the conflict. He is the true God. So you don't like the altar, you ask the gods or the God to light the altar. And then uh, Elijah said, uh, you guys go first. So for many hours, they prayed to Baal, and they danced around the altar, and they beseeched Baal to bring down fire from heaven, but nothing. Elijah had a wicked sense of humor. Elijah would taunt them a little bit. Try harder. Maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Yeah, that's one of them. They start screaming, and they start cutting themselves. Twelve hours they do this. Again, nothing. Elijah's turn. First, he rebuilt the altar of the Lord that the others had dismantled. Bull on top again. Advantage Baal. Then Elijah looked at the altar and told the crowd, it's too dry. He wants to remove any obstacle or any claim of trickery or uh, some sort of, of shyster maneuver that he can. So he says, it looks too dry. Let's go down, bring up barrels, and we're going to douse it with water, even, even build trenches around it. So they do that. And they said, you know, it still looks too dry. Bring up barrels, and let's douse it again. And they do that. And then he looks at it and says, you know, I think it's too dry. Bring up some more barrels, and they douse it a third time. And then Elijah prayed. And I timed his prayer, praying slowly, And carefully, it took me 23 seconds. Lightning descended and consumed the altar, nothing left but ashes. And the people confessed their sins, repented, got rid of Baal worship by killing the priests of Baal. And what's interesting to me is that James does not enter the story until now. None of what went before, although it's the context of it. James's point is very important. At this point, Elijah prayed for rain. And then he prayed. And then he prayed. And then he prayed some more. 
he prayed with prayer. And the rain came, and God brought healing to the parched land. So sin, confession, prayer, healing. It's probably a, probably a good thing James points to the prayer for rain rather than the prayer for the fire to come down from heaven on the patient who's on a bed. There's a postscript to this story. Jezebel was so infuriated at the exposure and the embarrassment of her precious priests of Baal that she put out a contract on Elijah's life and told him, by sundown, you're going to be dead. And while he was not afraid of the priests of Baal, he was afraid of Jezebel, and he ran away, proving that Elijah was indeed a man with a nature just like ours. So as a matter of perspective here, let's remind ourselves what this passage in James is teaching us. Remember the bookends. I'm going to repeat the repeated words. Pray, 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 prayer, pray, prayer, prayed with prayer, prayed. And in fact, in the span of the book, James says more about prayer proportionally than any other New Testament book. Prayer is not stringing together long, flowery, ornate phrases to impress God with our knowledge of big words. Uh, it's also not a formula for, that you have to follow to push God's vending machine buttons so that you get the right outcome. It's talking with God. In a way, we may leave this passage with some unanswered questions about some of the details about healing, but we do not leave this passage misunderstanding what God wants us to do. Right? He wants us to do what? Pray. When you pray, remember that the, the disciples never asked James' half-brother, Jesus, Lord, teach us to heal. Teach us to teach. Teach us to run a committee. Teach us to witness. They did ask him to teach us to pray. When you pray, when you pray, you are in God's presence. Everything is stripped away. You're open. You're vulnerable. He knows me intimately. Everything about me. When you and I talk, I can fool you about me. You can fool me about you. But we cannot fool our Lord. And Jesus went to the cross knowing every dark secret in your heart and still went there. In fact, that is why he went there and why we remember him. Corrie ten Boom, the Holocaust survivor, asked a great question in her own unique way of asking of saying things, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? When you pray, when you pray, things change. 
Now, I know that there are divine determinists out there who say prayer doesn't change things, it changes me. Another version is prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. The truth is, when you read the Bible, it does both. It definitely changes us because in prayer we're seeking to align our will with God's will. But the Bible's also full of examples of changing God's plans. Now, how that happens is a theological discussion for another time. But when Jesus prayed, he was not seeking to grow spiritually by aligning his will with the Father's will. He was asking the Father to do something specific. And that even included forgiving his executioners. When you pray, when you pray, Jesus, who died for you, is now your advocate with the Father. He intercedes for you. When you pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. We do not know how to pray as we should, Romans 8 says, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't have the words to say sometimes. We, sometimes we just say, Father, I... And I feel a little overwhelmed. But if I forget the details or the direction or the names or whatever I forget, Jesus doesn't forget and he knows and the Holy Spirit doesn't forget and he knows when you pray. When you pray. For those, some of us who have mileage on our faith, and I mentioned this many months ago, but I want you to hear me again. When you pray, you are participating in a ministry that we can do, in fact, that we all can do at any time, at any place, regardless of our physical limitations. As we age, I think we're tempted to think we can do less. That's not how God sees prayer. Actually, as it turns out, as we are able to do less, in some ways, as the guardrails of our physical world narrow, our eternal impact can broaden when you pray. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And does he then say, and God will grant your request? No. Not what he says. He gives something better. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will mount guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When Paul begged God to remove his thorn in the flesh, God said, no. But he said, my grace is enough for you. And in this case, he did not give healing. What he did do is he gave Paul. He gave himself. He gave himself. When we are suffering, wounded, hurting, God gives us himself. When we are dead in trespasses and sins, God gave us himself. We are all sinners, but the wages of sin is death. Yet, the gift of God, not what is earned like wages, we don't earn it, it's a gift of God, is eternal life when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord. He gives us himself. And we remember that act on the cross his death for our sins and our sorrows, his burial, his resurrection, 
And because he lives and we await his return, we remember him until he comes with the bread and the cup. I'm going to ask the men who are serving to come forward and to have a seat in the front. We're about to go to the Lord's table. This is not the table of the Signal Mountain Bible Church. It's the Lord's. If you belong to the Lord, it's your table too if you're a visitor. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake with us. If not, simply let the elements pass by. They are nested. We will partake of them uh, together. Um, and I'm going to suggest to you that you take the time from the time that you receive the elements until we partake together to pray and thank him for what he has done, for who he is, and the fact that we are together. And that's what communion means. It's both vertical and horizontal. Together, we're in communion, remembering Jesus until he comes.